Hello, I am Sam Hardy. I help funders and non-profits enhance their impact. This podcast is about how to influence policy at all levels of government. I deconstruct high-impact policy change campaigns with the people who lead them. Each episode is a practical tutorial from highly effective agents of policy change. I explore their mindsets and strategies and what they would do if they had their time again. So if you want to make an impact by running or funding a successful policy change campaign, this podcast is for you. I have a very special guest to kick off the first of two episodes of this podcast recorded just before the COVID-19 crisis. Lyndon Schneiders is regarded as one of Australia's most experienced and successful environmental advocates. He recently retired from his role as National Campaigns Director of the Wilderness Society, where he led teams that delivered a long list of wins for nature. In this first episode, we're going to be drawing on Lyndon's experience to answer these broad questions. What makes a good campaign strategy? What do we need to think about when we are first considering a campaign? And what can we learn from the shock outcome of the 2019 Australian federal election where the Australian Labor Party lost despite polling suggesting otherwise? I was recently involved with putting a book of tributes together to celebrate Lyndon's legacy at the Wilderness Society. I want to share some quotes. Bruce Hawker, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's Chief of Staff, had this to say. I always welcomed Lyndon's calls because he understands the broader political context in which environmental campaigns must be fought. And Damien McGreevy, Deputy Chief of Staff in the Queensland Government under Premier Peter Beattie, explained how Lyndon worked well with both sides of politics. Those that wanted to make progress, he enthused and delivered for as he promised. To those who wanted to preserve the status quo, he engendered considerable political fear and appropriate downside. With such experience to draw on, I am so honoured to have Lyndon as my first guest. Welcome, Lyndon. It's great to have you with me today in the Podstream studio here on the Central Coast. And it's an honour to have you as my first guest. I have so much to ask you. My first question is pretty light-hearted. How would your mum and dad describe what you do for a living? Oh, dear. Um, (laughs) Well, hello, Sam, and thanks so much for having me on this first chat too. Um, How would my mum and dad describe what I'd do for a living? It's a really good question. My mum never gets it and never has got it. She saw me in the newspapers, she'd see me on the telly, she'd tell her friends about that, but she didn't actually ever quite and still doesn't quite understand what I've been doing for the last 25 years other than she knows that it's probably for the good. Um, if I had to describe to a layperson um, what I'm trying to do, well, you know, what I try to do is I try to convince those with power to do the right thing by the environment and by the community, um, try to engender progressive social change in this country and try to build on the goodwill that actually sits in the hearts and minds of, you know, the vast majority of Australians who want to see the environment protected, who are concerned about climate change and who care about the future, you know. And so I've always seen my job as being a facilitator of sentiment, of community sentiment, and a translator of translating what people in the community care about to those with the power to make change. That's how I've always kind of seen my role. That was a really good summary, Lyndon. Now, tell us a little bit about Lyndon as a kid and as a young man and how you came to be an activist and then a hardened campaigner. There's a few different phases to my life that led me to end up becoming an advocate for the Wilderness Society in Queensland back in you know the late 1980s, early 1990s. 
I think the most formative and important experience for me as a young kid was growing up in uh, at the foothills of the forest of the Central Highlands in Victoria. Um, my mum and dad originally came from Melbourne, and we I spent a lot of my time, you know, between well up to you know when I was about ten in the forests, just as the forest as the backyard, um, with the bird song with the experience of nature being abundant and being a backdrop to all the positive and negative experiences I had growing up to that age. You know, so nature was always there uh, and nature was, it wasn't a refuge, but nature was always such a positive and powerful backdrop for my life and the experiences I was having. Um, when I was 10, my, my family split, my mum and dad split and I moved up to Brisbane with my mum and that was another really quite... Uh, important intervention in my life and the direction of my life because we moved to Brisbane in the late 1970s, sort of giving away my age, um, and it was a time of real political turmoil in Queensland, um, a very you know, um, well, a very popular but very authoritarian and repressive government had been in charge of Queensland for many years under Joe Bielke-Peterson. And when we first moved to Brisbane in the like late 70s, it was the height of protests and campaigns against a whole range of destructive environmental projects that were being overseen by Bajelki Peterson and his regime. It was the height of a whole bunch of battles around land rights and the recognition of Aboriginal land rights and around the protection of civil liberties, you know, the right to march, the right to protest, were, were a backdrop to coming to Brisbane in the 1970s and they were very central and they had a huge impact on me a huge impact on me because it was such a big change from Melbourne. I'm not saying Melbourne and Victoria was fantastic, but um, in the late 70s, you know, you could, you could feel as though change was happening in places like Melbourne and Victoria, whereas in Queensland, the battle was raging and the odds were not great. A land rights activist, a traditional owner, an environmentalist or a civil libertarian were not popular and the things they did took courage and they were, you know, they were persecuted. People were in jail. People were beaten on the streets for standing up for what was right and what was important. So that had a huge impact on me as a young bloke. You know, I, uh, I was very fortunate to go to a fantastic public high school uh, in Brisbane where we had some teachers who were incredible activists themselves, you know, for, for, for education and the right to protest and the, and the need for a civil society. And they had a huge impact on me as I was growing up and becoming a, a young adult as well. And they encouraged me to be active and they saw... They saw things in me that maybe others hadn't seen before and they encouraged me to want to make a difference. And that was a huge, you know, fill up and a huge um, uh, change for me in my life decisions. They, they said to, they told me that the world can change and they told me it only changes because good people stand up and make a difference. So that was a huge impact. Queensland's environment had a huge impact on me. It's a beautiful place. It's just a stunningly beautiful place. And so much beauty even in the vicinity of Brisbane, you know, where I was growing up. Uh, the Green Mountains behind um, the Gold Coast, you know, Lamington, the famous Lamington National Park and Springbrook, mind-blowingly beautiful and incredible and outer-worldly and ancient. Fraser Island, one of the truly most beautiful places on the planet for anyone who hasn't been there, just you've got to get there. It is such a gorgeous place. Massive rainforests on sand dunes and hundreds of freshwater lakes and beaches that go forever. It's just an incredible place. So Queensland's environment also inspired me. It sort of, it encouraged me to, 
you know, again, connect with what had been so important to me when I was a really young bloke living in the central highlands of Victoria. Um, so I think a combination of, you know, the social setting in which I was growing up, encouragement by people I respected to want to make a difference and that it was important to make a difference and the inspiration of the natural world itself and how important that was to human health and human well-being. I've always been a confident person and I think one of the reasons why that's the case is I take solace and I get recharged by the natural world and natural world makes me feel extraordinary. So I think they're probably important steps along the journey. You know, I walked out the door one day and decided I was going to start supporting campaigns. Uh, as a volunteer, I walked into, in fact, the Wilderness Society office in, in Brisbane, in uh, Albert Street back in the day. I said, I'm here to help. You know, I'd been to university <laughs> by then and done a bit of study and I knew a few things. I had some experiences and um, there I was and there I stayed for another 25 years. That's an amazing record, Lyndon. So I think you've partly asked my next question, which is, can we, the common people, really make a positive difference in our world today, given the weaknesses inherent in our democracy, such as the corrupting power of vested interest and the influence of misinformation online? I can imagine a lot of people are feeling very cynical now. So what's your answer to that question and why? Yeah, for me, it's not the question of can. It's, kind of, it's the question of we must. You know, and, and no world is perfect and no setting is perfect and no campaign opportunities are perfect. Nothing's perfect. We don't live in a perfect world. But we, we live in a human world, you know, and we live in a human world that has all of our greatness and all of our weaknesses manifest always. There's no perfect state to aspire to. There's a state in which you need to get to. But And clearly when we would talk about things like environmental sustainability, you know, addressing the threats of climate change, social equity, all of those issues, um, we have to make the imperfect as good as it possibly can. Um, the surest way not to create change is to give up. That's the surest way. You already know what the answer is. Then it's 100% certain that bad things are going to keep on happening and the end state is going to be significantly worse than what it is if you don't give in to that temptation. It's understandable. I, un I, I do get that. But it's the surest pathway to making sure that we don't get the sort of change we need it's also the surest pathway to ensure that um, we don't put the pressure on those who have the power to make the changes that need to be made. And I don't always, when I say that, I'm not just talking about the, the political decision makers or the business decision makers, I'm not giving them the power. I also mean ourselves. Like ordinary Australians, ordinary people anywhere, and I don't use ordinary in a dismissive sense, we actually have an enormous amount of power. We have an enormous power in our own lives, our ability to persuade and advocate in our communities, in our families, amongst our friend groups. This is actually how change happens. It doesn't happen by some grand strategy or someone writing some incredible document. All those things are important. It happens because the change comes up from below. And that only comes from communication between friends and in the families and in your community, that's the only way changes happen. So the powers of status quo are huge, there's no doubt about it. Some of that power is structural and some of that power is actually human nature. People don't like change often, you know. So there's structural power and there's just humanity and our ability, you know, inability to, to recognise and respond to change. But we shouldn't give them all the power because we have enormous power ourselves to make the change. And we have a system, whether it's perfect or not, in democracy 
in which we do have some ability to change the direction in which our country travels, but it only happens when a critical mass of people get together and want to advocate for that change. I'm not a, a, a pessimist. I've always been an optimist. Um, I believe the only thing you can do is to be part of the change. You have to make that change yourself. You have to live that change yourself. And, you know, from my own life experience, I've seen enormously good things happen when good people have worked together to advocate for change, who have been inspired by the needs and who um, generate passion and um, passion and goodwill and passion and goodwill are extraordinary attributes. They're very human attributes and they're things we must channel. Well, that again leads nicely to my next question, which is you've been involved with many successful environmental campaigns. Looking back... What have been your most impactful or your most significant in your mind? That's a really hard question. I'd love to answer that question in 20 years. I'm not going to answer that question in 20 years because, you know, I'm genuinely not sure if we can judge the effectiveness of anything or the impacts of small or large activities until they've stood the test of time the test of time, you know. And we've got a rapidly changing external environment now. Um, So I'm not ever sure whether the small thing that I might consider was a small thing now was actually a huge thing or the thing that felt like a huge thing was quite a small thing. I just just don't know. I think time only tells, you know. Um, One of the things that I always encourage for people to think about when they're considering campaigning, for example, is the change you're seeking or the change we're seeking sustainable, you know. Um, We talk about sustainable society, but sustainable change is really important as well. One of the things I've seen in my life as an activist is often extraordinary achievements and moments of great success have not always been sustainable and often have been overturned, you know, and that says that there was a problem in the campaign itself. You know, you think about things like the clean energy package that was introduced in 2011, 2012 under the Gillard minority government. And that was an extraordinary package of reforms that had the potential to completely restructure our economy and put us on a much more sustainable basis in respect to climate change. It was, you know, almost a decade ago now, so many of the problems that are confronting us now may not have all been addressed through that package, but it was an extraordinary achievement, but it wasn't sustainable, you know, and it was gone. And once it was gone, not only was that package gone and the good measures to try to address the existential threat of climate change, but the momentum of the campaign, the momentum of the movement was also really damaged. And people have learnt out of that, it's good, but it's something about the sustainability of change. And so I think about what are the most important things that have been achieved in it. It's those that have actually stood the test of time and that had a critical mass of support, and that delivered benefits for everyone or as close to everyone as possibly could. Can you give us an example of one in particular? Yeah, look, I think about, you know, I've been involved in a lot of campaigns, as you say, and some have, you know, haven't stood the test of time, which is one of the reasons I'm, you know, reflecting back now as a, you know, 51-year-old, whatever I am, reflecting back and trying to recognise what was good and bad and ugly of all that period. I think about some of the things I actually did on Cape York, which are lesser known. You know, the return of land to the Woodity people up at Shelburne Bay on Cape York Peninsula. Um, That's still a story that's being written. It's still a journey that's underway. But I think about the 1980s when the threat of sand mining hung over Shelburne Bay. Uh, Under that period, under Queensland Governor Jelke Peterson, there was a proposal to sand mine the pure white 
sand, silica sand dunes of Shelburne, one of the most remarkable places you'll ever find on the earth, you know, hundreds of kilometres of rolling pure white sand dunes interspersed with incredible lakes and vegetation on the coast. It's one of the most remote, wild places you've ever been in your life. And so in the 80s, there was a proposal to sand mine there because of the high-grade 99% pure silica sand. An extraordinary campaign was led by um, a young, then young conservationist called Don Henry, who ended up becoming the executive director of the ACF. And he worked with the traditional owners, you know, the Wooditi people, who had been taken off their land many, many years earlier and dispersed across the country, dispersed across the country, brutally dispersed. But somehow Don and uh, Don found uh, Wooditi elders who had still were still yearning to return home, yearning to um, protect their country. Uh, yearning to revive the cultural links back to their their homelands where they'd lived for thousands of years. And together they started a campaign that ultimately I was fortunate enough to be part of in its last sort of decade that saw sand mining never occur, um, despite some of the harshest political environments and conditions you could possibly imagine, that saw the land return to the Wooditi people as Aboriginal freehold, that saw a whole new model of protected area management in which the, a, a national park was created. It was owned by the Wooditi people and is managed by the Wooditi people uh, and which has also enabled people to return to country, you know, after a disconnect for, you know, 70, 80 years. Um, I think about that campaign and, as I said, the story isn't finished now because it's a human story and Wooditi are back on the country. But that was an incredible thing, you know. That was an incredible campaign. That made an incredible difference. An incredible part of the world is not being mined. An incredible cultural story is being reconnected and justice is being delivered. It's only a small story and it's not going to loom large in the annals of Australian history and no one's going to talk about that. But I, And I only played a small part in that campaign. You know, I, I helped carry the baton um, in the 90s and 2000s to help get to that end point. And the, and the true heroes of that story are the Woodity, you know, who have stood firm for, you know, 100 years to get back to that country. But that was the most important and impactful thing I think I've ever done. It sounds like the start of a documentary at ABC <laughs> Doco or something. Oh, that's, that's lovely to hear that story, Lyndon. What different types of campaign strategies have you deployed over the years? Yeah, look, it's, it's funny. You learn as you go. Um, and again, I, I'm different. You know, you'd ask that question of, uh, of 20 different advocates and you're going to get 20 different answers. And there's no right answer either, you know. I'm a bit of an intuition and experience type of guy, <laughs> um, mainly because I do tend to look at the world through the lens of humans that are a problem and the solution. And, you know, <laughs> the best fought strategies um, don't necessarily survive engagement with the reality of humanity and society, you know. <laughs> um, so the part of me is I'm not down on strategy and and and. For the listeners, you know, Sam knows me well, know that I, I do go through quite a detailed planning process when I develop campaign strategies and what have you and work with teams to develop those strategies. But I do think that there's a fair bit of um, gut and intuition that comes into, into play. But trying to answer your question at a technical level, the questions I think you have to ask when you're about to run a campaign, there's several of them. And one of them is, what is the change that you're trying to facilitate? You know, what is actually the end point? You know, and because you kind of need to know the journey and have some idea about 
the you know the, the swings and roundabouts are going to come in the journey when you're starting. And and what is the scale of the change? Because often the scale of the change is incredibly important. You know, like you've only got one life, and at any given time, there's a thousand great causes out there in life. And I think what I've learned is if I'm going to spend time working on a campaign or an issue, you kind of need to know that there's going to be a multiplier effect. You need to know that there's going to be a positive outcome. You need to know that the the, the achievement, if you get there, is actually sustainable. That There's going to be more people that win than lose out of it and that those that lose, lose with honour and have a future as well. You know, polarity, it's an old boring subject now amongst, you know, progressives and amongst political commentators and all the rest about how polarised society's become. But it's real. You know, the polarity is making progressive change, good change, change that benefits the maximum amount of people really hard because the content doesn't matter anymore. It's the blue team versus the red team or the green team versus the whatever team, you know, like the content doesn't matter. You know, watching the bushfire debate was really predictable. You know, those who back the government and those who feel an empathy for the government were going to say it was about hazard reduction burning and those that did not like the government were going to say it was about climate change. It was preordained. Like this debate that raged in this country over the summer of 2019-20 was preordained. You know, the question for me around that debate is who are the people who haven't chosen sides yet? Because they're the people we need to be talking to. Right, um, And I don't mean to say that it's an end game of good guys and bad guys or this or that, but honestly, so much in our society has been polarised, partly because I think at the start of a whole bunch of campaign cycles for, for good reasons, people haven't really thought about the implications of the change and they haven't thought about who was going to be impacted. And, you know, there, there are always losers, and particularly in environmental campaigns. Environmental campaigns are often about resources, you know, they're often about the allocation of resources and people do lose. Lots of people benefit. It's a, Of course, I'm a lifetime environmentalist. Do I think environmental campaigning is the most important thing in the world? Of course I do. But, you know, if I had my time again, I would have thought much more about the unintended consequences and tried to put in place steps to change that. Do you mean here thinking ahead when you're planning a campaign? Yeah. What are the unintended consequences for the losing side and trying to for those that are those. impacted by success, yep, your success. You know, I've seen lots of trends in the environmental movement and campaigning in general around developing critical paths and developing power maps and developing timelines and developing all these tools, which are really important tools, by the way. But often what's not included is who's going to have to change because of the good thing that you're promoting and can you ameliorate that? Can you reach out? Sometimes you can't, by the way. Sometimes it's winners and losers. You know, if you're a native forest logger and you your life has been logging old growth forests and you get an end of old growth log, forest logging, yes, there may be retraining possibilities. Yes, there may be a big compo package, but chances are if that's what you've done for your life, you're not going to be doing that for the next part of your life at all. <laughs> you're just not. So sometimes you can't ameliorate the impacts, but the very act of considering that there's going to be people that don't benefit from the positive change that you're helping generate, you know, it's, it's almost disrespectful, you know? Like we need human solutions to a human problem. The environmental crisis is a, is a human problem. It's not an environmental problem. We use that language of environment problem. 
it's not like the environment chose to have a fight with us. You know? <laughs> we have developed ways of living which have brought incredible benefits to so many people, particularly in the Western world. But we have created a way of living that is inherently unsustainable and we've created an economy that is inherently unsustainable and we have to change that. Now, we either change it through ruthless disruption, which will create a different sort of world in the future of the haves and have-nots, or we genuinely have to walk in the shoes of those that are going to be negatively impacted by what we're doing and we have to be hearing them and we have to find a way for them. They may choose not to follow us, but there's a basic humanity that has to be followed here. I love where you're going with that thread, Lyndon. Um, It speaks to me of what happened um, during the 2019 federal election. Maybe you've been thinking deeply about that for months now. Can you give me a bit of your analysis of what happened? Because it's, to me, it looking at it and reflecting on it, I think um, the climate movement didn't do enough of thinking about the losers of rapid change from coal. And, and that has been part of the sort of political situation we're faced with now. What would be your advice going forward, reflecting on that to, to campaigners now, thinking about their strategies? Yeah, it's the question of the age, isn't it? Uh, and you're right, I've been, you know, <laughs> like many people, I've been reflecting on 2019 and my own role in that outcome as well. You know, the Wilderness Society took a very active role in that campaign because we saw it as a big opportunity for, you know, generational change. And it wasn't generational change. Um, the first thing I'll say before digging into it is none of this is easy. And the reflections I guess I'm having are not criticisms, you know, Um They're my reflections around what's happened. You know, for the anti-coal movement, you know, it's not like the anti-coal movement has not got an incredibly difficult challenge in front of it. (laughs) Coal is an extraordinarily important resource in the short term for our economy. You know, like Australia, standard of living is propped up in the short term by our coal and our gas exports. There's no doubt about it, you know. Many... You know, I've seen a lot of work done around fossil fuel subsidies and all the rest of it, and I agree that we do subsidise many of these industries through taxpayer money, but I also can read and I can see how much dough comes back into this country from exporting this stuff, you know. (laughs) Um, This country is built in the last 50 years on fossil fuel exports, and we just have to be upfront around that, you know. So the job that the anti-coal and the fossil fuel movement has taken on is incredibly ambitious and incredibly important. And so, as I said, I'm not going to bag out a whole bunch of really fantastic campaigners and people who are doing great work. I'm not going to do that because it's incredibly hard and it's incredibly important and literally our future depends on these campaigns being successful. Right? So it's a long uh, proviso, but I feel it's important to say that. Campaigning success breeds many positive things. It breeds learnings around um, what works and what doesn't work. It creates a mythology that a movement needs. You know, every movement needs great stories and great myths. And one of the great stories of Australian environmentalism is the Franklin campaign, you know. Now, having led the Wilderness Society for 10 years and being a Wilderness Society campaigner for 25 years and for the Wilderness Society being born in the Franklin campaign, you know, the, the Franklin's huge in our shared mythology. It's huge in my own DNA about what I used to try to do as the leader of that organisation. But the Franklins created some myths 
that needs some critical analysis, you know. The number of times in the last 10 years I've heard campaigners say, this battle's going to be the next Franklin. And I genuinely, my stomach sinks, my heart sinks. Because the Franklin was an extraordinary campaign, an extraordinary important campaign, particularly in the context in which it was set, the 1970s, you know, massive hydro campaigns. The fact that, you know, Australians from all walks of life were prepared to come together to say no, it was a genuine turning point, a genuine turning point, like those, you know, up in Terania Creek who did the same to stand in front of the loggers and the bulldozers, you know, in the 1970s. It was an an epic and an important moment. But it was 40 years ago and the world's changed. You know, and we are no longer a noisy minority of, you know, great people who are standing up to power. We actually now, through our cause, represent majority opinion. But we often act as if we are the disempowered minority. And I just think that's a mistake. We are in ascendancy. The environmental movement is a hundred million dollar a year movement. You know, we might want to say it's, you know, a jagged bunch of hardy individualists standing up to power and, you know, on one level, yes, it is still because the powers that we are trying to reform and change are massive. But we can't pretend anymore that we're, you know, uh, passionate amateurs. It's a big movement. Millions of Australians support it and we have to take that power and responsibility seriously. And I think when we talk about Campaign X being the next Franklin and you can put whatever name you want to put into it, We are not correctly understanding the relative power and influence we have in our society because the Franklin was David and Goliath, you know? It genuinely was. We are a much more powerful movement and there are many, many more people who really want us to prevail and succeed, not just Australia, around the world, in business, in government. But that means there comes a responsibility of that power. And... um, I think we tend to look at our opponents as having all the power and we being the dogged defenders, and it's just not true. The people who are most negatively influenced by the things that we need to happen and that we as a society need to happen often have really marginal long-term employment prospects, are living in areas where services are really poor, live in tough places, they work in tough jobs, dangerous jobs, hard jobs, often really quite unsatisfying jobs. You know, people talk about coal miners not getting paid all the money. Well, there's a reason they're getting paid so much money. It's dangerous and the work is crap. Like it's bad work, you know. It's not fun work. You don't see too many coal miners. And I'm a Queenslander. I've spent a lot of time hanging out with people that work in the resources sector. You don't see too many coal miners talking about the dignity of labour, right? It's not like it used to be where somehow there would be an achievement and there was a skilled job. You're pushing buttons, you know, and you're working in dangerous places and you're working in hot places and you're doing work that is difficult and also very unpleasant work. And you're often doing it for uncaring transnationals who really don't care and who really just want to automate your job as soon as practical, right? And I do think the environmental movement and the climate movement needs to understand a bit more that the people that are going to be impacted by the change that must happen are not the devil, you know? And if we keep treating them like the devil, and we have done that for a long time, we demonise, and I understand why campaign strategy says you've got to diminish the community standing of your opponents. But the more we demonise, the more they dig in, you know? And the more they dig in, the more they vote. 
progressive people are shocked and horrified by what they see happening in the world in the last five years. They're shocked and horrified by Trump. They're shocked and horrified by Brexit. They're shocked and horrified by what happened in 2019. But perhaps they shouldn't be so shocked and horrified. Maybe they should be just trying to understand what happened and why. And maybe we should be thinking about how our campaigning starts to build bridges, you know? And it's tough, right? I get it. I said at the outset of this question, I know how, how important these fossil fuel campaigns are. And I'm not going to bag anyone because they're tough. They're really tough. But if we've learned anything out of 2019 is that there is a whole bunch of people out there who have just said, have given us all collectively the middle finger. And unless we can build a you know, big enough tent for them, then we're going to get many more shocks electorally in this country. It won't just be this little oddity in 2019. It's going to be interesting to see how Trump goes. It will. You know, I don't want to make assessments now. I always look like a fool. But I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if he doesn't do too badly. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> Alarmingly, yeah. Well, you know, it's that funny thing. It's challenging for social movements, particularly our movement that relies on democracy and the power of people to make change, that we have to take one step back, right? We have to take one step back and say, we got a democratic message, you know, in 2019, in the same way the Brits got it around Brexit and the same way that the, the good American progressives got it in 2016. Now, if we believe in democracy, aren't we supposed to listen and understand the message? Isn't that? Or are we going to arm ourselves up more? Because guess what? The good people who are being disadvantaged and who are giving us the finger... Behind them are bad people who are making large amounts of money and will happily continue to flame these divisions for their own interests, you know. We need to understand what the problem is. We need to understand what the solution is. And we can't blame those who are using their democratic power in the middle of this debate to give us the finger. I think on that one, it's such a good analysis, Lyndon, and you're leading me perfectly to my next question, which is about... Um, how you embark on a campaign, because that understanding the nature of the problem, I think, is core to the way you approach it. So my first question, looking at the nuts and bolts of campaigning, is how should we go about deciding if and when to mount a policy change campaign? Um, Are there fundamental criteria or prerequisites that you look for before you put thought and energy and resources into it? Yeah, and look, and I've, you know, the older I've got, the more simple I've tried to make this. It's kind of a problem-solution equation. You know, what's the problem? What's the solution? You know, often the problem isn't the real problem. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. But no, I'd love you to explain that a little yeah. bit more, actually. <laughs> you know, like uh, wrapping on some of the things we talked about previously. Is coal mining the problem? Of course, in a climate change equation, of course it's the problem. It's one of the, you know, drivers of emissions increases. It's built an unsustainable economic model, you know, cheap energy, blah, blah, blah. But the actual social problem is in Australia is the lack of other things to do. <laughs> you know? So coal mining may well be a problem, right? That may be where you start from, a very rational thing, you know, and, and you know, looking at the people behind the coal, anti-coal campaigns over the last 10 years, smart people who identified a problem and prosecuted, it's bloody brilliant. And many of the campaigns have been incredibly effective. So, you know, why did they choose coal? They didn't choose coal to go and beat up coal communities. They chose coal because of, you know, the profile that coal has in, in bringing on climate change. But the question might be, if we have to get people off coal, which we do, what's the social safety net? You know, so for me, the problem around coal isn't a problem 
exclusively around emissions reduction and climate change problems and possibilities and issues. It's actually a problem around sustainable communities, sustainable jobs, sustainable economic opportunities. You know, so that's what I mean. Like, if I had to go and map out a problem and solution diagram for things like that, I wouldn't necessarily start by looking at all the climate change ins and outs. I'd be looking at what are the barriers to success. And the barriers are social and community and human. Regional economic development, essentially. Yeah. There was a brilliant um, article, I know you read it, Sam, at the time, that came out post. um, the 29 election, um, in the monthly of all places, because, you know, monthly is a great magazine, but it's not usually, you know, deeply critical of left progressivist thinking. But there was a brilliant article about um, how good is Queensland, I think it's called How Good is Queensland, by a Queensland author who just has, you know, comes from Queensland, lives in regional Queensland and tried to describe what happened in Queensland during the 2019 campaign from the ground. As a progressive person, by the way, not, you know, some hillbilly dictator sort of thing, but as a progressive person, um, and I encourage people to read it, <laughs> you know, I encourage people to read it because, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people bemoaning the fact that, you know, Australia is incredibly conservative and this, that and the other. And I've had a generation of conservative politicians and this, that and governments and what have you. I encourage them to count, right? Like there is a reason we have had most of the last 25 years being run by centre-right coalitions in this country and it's called Queensland. <laughs> right? And one of these days... We're going to try to understand Queensland, he says, as an ex-Queenslander and as a, you know, still practising Queenslander in fought and actions. Um, one of these days we're going to have to reconcile ourselves to Queensland and Queenslanders because, you know, if, if the rest of the country voted the way it votes at every election, we would have had 25 years of progressivist government. <laughs> That's just the sums, right? That's just the numbers. You know, the only time we've had a change of government federally since 1996 was when a Queenslander... <laughs> was actually running a political party, right? Yeah. People need to come to grips of this stuff. And so when we look at profound issues like coal mining or new energy policies, if we choose to just ignore Queensland and the impacts on Queensland and why Queensland is different, and if we choose to build caricatures of people as, you know, essentially black and white figures of scorn, then we will find in our enjoyable and fulfilling southern lives that our national parliament in particular, which has a massive responsibility, a massive responsibility in terms of climate policy and environmental policy, will continue to disappoint us because they, for example, are very clear around the electoral maths of why they've been elected every three years just about continuously since 1996 and they know it's about Queensland. And when we all have a good laugh at kind of crazy Barnaby Joyce and we have a good laugh at Matt Canavan or we scour at him, we should actually give them some level of respect for what they're doing because they know better than us. <laughs> and they know who they're talking to. So, you know, that's where problem solution for me is really important. Understanding the waves and the ripples and impacts of your campaign strategy from the outset, understanding the intended and unattended consequences, you know, and then understanding what's the best way to get to the desired state because it's not always the best way to have the big campaign and the big battle. And, you know, you can do many things through persuasion. You know, in fact, the minute you start to want to fire salvos across the battlefield, as it were, you are almost locking in a very long campaign. That's one an of the interesting thing, You know, one of the things I've seen is campaigns do not go away. Once they start, they take years and years 
and years. And sometimes that's required because sometimes the scale and nature of change is so massive and so important that you have to be prepared to actually, you know, get on the fatigues sometimes, but not always. And I think often we, too often at least, we go for battle first rather than trying to understand is there a different pathway. That's interesting. Can you give an example where you've identified that there was a quicker, easier, quieter, probably invisible way to get the outcome you wanted? Is there is there an example of that you can draw oh, on? Totally. You know, I can think of many, but they're often small. You know, they often look small because they didn't escalate. Right, they didn't escalate, and that was the point, you know, because you don't always need them to escalate. Um, look, I think about um, the first, the first term of the Abbott government, where literally almost anything bad could have happened, you know, like and a lot of bad things did happen, including you know winding back the carbon tax. But you know, there was two campaigns that were really important that didn't require the full scale battle. One was around. Um, a proposal to delist um, uh, from World Heritage Protection tall forests in Tassie. You know, these forests had just these forests had been a site of pitched battles for literally twenty five years. These were the southern forests of Tasmania, some of the tallest you know forests in the world, the Sticks, the Florentine, the world, um, incredible places. They'd been offered protection in 2012 through a unique thing called the Tasmanian Forest Agreement, which had come about largely because you know the GFC had gutted a chunk of the Tasmanian forest industry, particularly the export components around wood chips and what have you, and a, a major trading house, a major logging operation, uh, Guns Limited, it collapsed, partly, it collapsed partly because of conservation campaigns. So the conditions were set for industry, greenies and the trade unions to come up with a peace plan to try to send Tassie in a different direction after 25 years of conflict down there. And one of the manifestations of the ultimate agreement, which was reached in 2012, was the protection of these incredibly important forests that have been fought for for years. You know, active blockades have been in place for years. Thousands of Australians have taken action. Thousands, you know, hundreds of Australians have been arrested. People have done so many extraordinary things. Such a long heritage of history. And, you know, and, and Abbott, for whatever reason, during the 2013 election campaign, which everyone knew he was going to win, announced that he was going to delist those protected forests. Despite the fact that industry didn't want that to happen, despite the fact that unions didn't want that to happen, no one wanted it to happen, he said he was going to do it. Now, we had a choice post-2013 election. We had a choice. We could have decided that was going to be a line in the sand and we were going to run a huge, big public campaign and we were going to battle and we were going to make it a culture war. That's one option, right, because it was a stupid proposal. We didn't choose to do that. We tried persuasion. We went around and talked to that government and we understood that nobody, <laughs> nobody in the government wanted to go down this path. You know, literally a couple of shell-backed old Tasmanian senators who had been wanting to reopen a fight wanted to do it, but no one from the PM down wanted it, you know. And we had a choice. We could escalate or we could let it quietly die. And we let it quietly die, you know. Very experienced campaigners worked the United Nations and, World Heritage Committee circuits. They did great work. The industry, bless them, actually came out strong and said, we don't want this. The unions did the same. And when the government got a bad decision, um, and I think it was in Berlin or Bonn, it was one of the German company uh, 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 towns, that in fact the UN did not support delisting 
and we're encouraging them to relist. That government could have government could have gone, well, stuff the UN. Many governments have done that in the past, but they didn't. They let it die. And we all let it die. And we all moved on. And we didn't take the chance to go back to the battlefields. And we left those forests in peace. And we left the goodwill intact. So that's one example. I could literally give you many, many others. In relation to that campaign, was there a particular thing that you, was it because there were so many members of the party that just didn't want it to go ahead? Was that the deciding factor to let it die? Yeah, I think so. There was many components to it and some of them I still probably can't disclose because there's a whole bunch of people still sitting active in <laughs> Parliament, you know. Um, and as much as I like telling stories, I probably, you know, won't tell all the stories. Look, what was really clear was that, as I said, no one with power and authority wanted this to happen. You know, no one. So the key lesson from that is before you're mounting a big public-facing campaign, you need to play the inside track as well and get your intel. You need to understand the political context as well as the external context. Yeah, and, 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 and develop the strategy accordingly. There's an orthodoxy sometimes amongst campaigning, and not just amongst the enviros either, but there's an orthodoxy that says, you know, as I said before, you go and do your power map, you do this, you do that, you develop your plans and goals, and, rah, rah, rah. and they're all important things to do. Um, but they all rely on, at the outset, this idea that it's going to escalate. And you know what? We don't have to escalate everything. In fact, given the size and scale of the changes that need to be made in society, it'd be better not to have a thousand campaigns running at once. And in fact, to focus on the real drivers of change that are required in this country right now would be my view. But there's something in orthodoxy around campaign strategy that says ultimately you're going to end up escalating. And I, I just don't think that's a good starting point. That's really interesting. And I suppose there's drivers for that working environment at organisations as we both have. Mm. You want, sometimes want a big public campaign so you can fundraise off the back of it. Oh, totally. You know, if you, do, if you achieve invisible wins that you can't claim credit for, your organisation doesn't really benefit. So... It's, it's a real hard challenge, isn't it, for an organisation? It, it is. And that's partly about, um, you know, before I guess I was having a bit of an impassioned rant about the fact that it ain't the Franklin anymore. With the leadership of the environmental movement, there's responsibility, you know, and we don't always have to go and take the commercially viable path. Like we are still part of a movement. The leaders, the campaigners, the members and supporters see themselves as part of a movement. We are a movement. We're a progressive movement for change. And sometimes we have to act like that. That was the first of two episodes listening to the campaigning wisdom of Lyndon Schneiders. We learnt so much about how to think deeply about a campaign before we begin. In my next episode with Lyndon, we get into the day-to-day nuts and bolts of campaigning. We also speak directly to any funders listening about how to spot a potential high-impact campaign. And Lyndon gives his take on what to fund with a hypothetical $5 million. Thank you for listening to Agents of Policy Change. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate the show as this helps other people find it. And please get in touch with your comments and suggestions at samhardyphilanthropy.com.au.